Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. A special thanks to the Hokotehi Moriori Trust for their support and assistance in telling the history of their people. In this episode of the Aotearoa History Show, we're discussing some of the history of the Moriori people. This story is widely misunderstood by lots of New Zealanders, and over the years, people have been told a lot of stuff about Moriori, which is, well... Complete and utter rubbish. Yeah, like that Moriori were the first people to arrive in Aotearoa and were driven out by Māori invaders. That is not what happened. Or that they were descended from Vikings or ancient Celtic people. Absolutely not true. Or even that they're extinct. No, they are very much still alive and kicking. But the real story is fascinating, tragic and important. There's a lot we can learn from Moriori history, so let's get into it. Ko William Ray tēnei. Ko Mani Dunlop tēnei. Welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. Ko whawhoi tunu mātou, moake, moake, ake. Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament. And no more land to be sold. First, let's talk about the place Moriori call home. Today, it's known by three names. Rekuhu, the original Moriori name, Chatham, the English name, and Farekodi, the Māori name. Now, these names technically refer to the largest of a group of islands, but to keep things simple, we refer to the whole group as Rekuhu from now on. Rekohu sits about 800 kilometres east of the South Island, in a part of the ocean known as the Chatham Rise that's particularly rich in sea life. The islands were home to massive colonies of birds and seals long before the first humans arrived. Some historians think Moriori Karapuna, or ancestors, arrived in Aotearoa alongside the ancestors of Māori. But instead of settling permanently in mainland New Zealand, they set sail again and made their home in Rekohu. But many Moriori believe the first arrivals came directly from eastern Polynesia to Rekohu and never lived in Aotearoa permanently. Some traditions suggest later arrivals may have migrated from Aotearoa, others point to voyaging back and forth between the islands. So there's a bit of debate over exactly how people first arrived at Rekohu, but what happened after they got here? Moriori tradition records that Rekohu was settled by multiple Imi tribes. They arrived in separate migrations several generations apart. Moriori Hokopapa, or genealogy, records the first arrivals as being led by two brothers, Rongomai Finua and Rongomai Tere. 
they erected the first pohinu, or post of the land, at Te Awapatiki, where the lagoon opens to the sea. This remains a sacred place to Moriori to this day. It's thought one of the earliest settlements was on neighbouring Rangihote, or Pit Island, before people spread to Rekohu. Generations later, a navigator called Kahu came from Hiawaiki. When he got back, he gave directions to his relatives. Even more generations after that, war broke out between the tribes in Hiawaiki. The Vitaina clan wanted to escape the conflict, so they followed Kahu's directions and sailed to Rekohu aboard two waka, Rangihoiwa and Rangimata. When they arrived, Fitaina agreed to live in peace alongside the descendants of Rongomai Whenua and Rongomai Tere. But a generation or two later, another waka arrived, Oropuke, carrying a fourth group, the Rauru clan. Rauru were historic rivals of Fitaina, and with their arrival, the peace on Rekohu shattered. Old grudges flared into warfare. Some even feared the custom of cannibalism from back in Hiawaiki might be revived. But in the midst of one battle, a man named Nunuku Whenua forced himself between the warring tribes. According to Moriori tradition, he said, Koro patu, koro kei tangata me tapu toake. Cease your fighting and lay down your weapons. From now and forever, never let there be war as this day has been. From today on, forget the taste of human flesh. May your bowels rot the day you disobey. In the generations that followed, boys would be taken to the tuahu, a sacred altar by their fathers. The old weapons would be handed to them and their purpose explained. The boys would then replace the weapons on the tuahu, affirming their dedication to Nunuku's law of peace. Moriori still had plenty of disputes and conflicts, but these conflicts weren't allowed to escalate into war. Physical conflict was managed by ritualised fighting using long, slender staffs called tupuare. After first blood was drawn, honour was deemed to have been satisfied, and fighting would stop. Life on Rekohu provided plenty of other challenges without the threat of war. There weren't any big hardwood trees to provide timber to build or repair traditional waka, and traditional crops like kumara couldn't grow in these cold and exposed islands. Moriori came up with all sorts of adaptations. They imported the kopi, or karaka tree, and harvested its nuts for food. Moriori used seal skins to protect themselves from the cold weather. They built waka filled with inflated cow bladders and bundles of dried flax held together with wooden framing. Seawater could wash through the frame and act as a ballast, making these vessels virtually unsinkable. Some were more than 18 metres long and carried people on expeditions to catch birds on islands up to 20 kilometres out to sea. And that was all part of a unique culture which developed over hundreds of years. There was little distinction between people based on rank. Work was shared equally and decisions were made cooperatively. It's worth underlining that because it's pretty rare in world history. Māori and Pākehā both had societies heavily based on hereditary leadership. Moriori also held a deep respect for the spiritual world. Even Māori, who were pretty spiritual themselves, described Moriori as a very tapu people. 
There were special chants and incantations for virtually every task or occasion. Moriori created thousands of rako momori, kopi trees engraved with permanent images. Most of the engravings depict ancestors. Others show sea life, birds and plants. Moriori believed that engraving images of loved ones onto the bark infused their spirit into the tree, which acted as a kind of portal to the spiritual homeland. Important meetings and ceremonies were held in groves of engraved kopi. Moriori still remembered the outside world through their hokopapa, but they had no contact with that wider world for hundreds of years. Then, on November 29, 1791, everything changed. A British ship turned up and a bunch of sailors wandered ashore. Their captain, Lieutenant William Broughton, claimed ownership of the island for Britain, naming it after his ship, the Chatham. According to Broughton's journal, first contact between Europeans and Moriori went pretty well. They seemed a cheerful race, a conversation frequently exciting bursts of laughter amongst them. On our first landing, their surprise and exclamation can only be imagined. They pointed to the sun and then to us, as if to ask whether we had come from thence. But Broughton said when he tried to return to his ship, things suddenly got tense. He wrote that Moriori grabbed at his men, knocking one to the ground. (coughs) Some of the sailors panicked and fired their muskets, killing one Moriori man and injuring others. The most widely accepted Moriori explanation is that this fight started after a sailor tried to steal a Moriori fishing net. Regardless, Nunuku's law had been broken. There had been violence and killing. But what's kind of interesting is both sides thought they were to blame. Lieutenant Broughton criticised his men for opening fire without orders and left a canoe full of food and trade goods on the beach as a sort of token of apology. Meanwhile, Moriori held a meeting to discuss the encounter and the Moriori men involved were punished. They agreed that if these strange people ever returned, Moriori would go to extreme lengths to keep things peaceful. When the next European ship arrived, Moriori held an elaborate ceremony. First, they dropped their weapons. Then a spokesman threw his cloak over the arrivals while giving a long speech of welcome. In the 1830s, Rikuhu was occasionally visited by European ships hunting seals and whales. According to a Moriori called Koche, whose father lived at the time, these visitors found Moriori hospitable, cheerful friends and willing assistants in their labours. And love between them flourished like a palm. But this interaction was also harmful. Maybe the most serious long-term impact was the extermination of seal colonies. As historian Michael King wrote, Whereas the Moriori practice had been to kill only male seals, usually older ones, and to remove the carcasses, European sealers killed indiscriminately and left flensed carcasses to rot around the rookeries, driving away even those animals that survived outright killing. By the 1830s, the rookeries on the main island were virtually bare of animals. Those seal colonies were extremely important to Moriori. There's a famous rock carving depicting them at Tiana Anunuku, also known as Nunuku's Cave. Without rich seal meat to eat and without warm seal skins to wear, Moriori must have had a tough time surviving the cold winters of Rekohu.
Meanwhile, European ships have been visiting mainland Aotearoa in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Some of them traded muskets with Māori in exchange for flax, timber, potatoes and pork. Rangatira quickly realised how effective these new weapons were and used them to settle old scores with rival tribes. Over the next 30 years, this spiralled into what's most commonly known as the musket wars. In short, they were a time of unprecedented chaos. It's estimated 50,000 people were killed, injured, displaced or enslaved. Caught up in all of this were two Taranaki iwi, Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Mutunga. They came under intense pressure from Waikato iwi raiding into their territory. But they also saw trade with Pākehā as a key to the future, something Ngāti Tōrangatira chief Te Rauparaha also recognised. So in the 1820s, a coalition made up of Ngāti Mutunga, Ngāti Tama, Ngāti Tōrangatira and others headed south. They eventually seized land in Kapiti, Horofenua, and around Whanganui Atara, or Wellington Harbour. But after about 10 years, that coalition started to fray, and Ngāti Mutunga and Ngāti Tama members held a series of hui to figure out what to do next. Young men from both iwi had been working on whaling ships out in the Pacific, and some of them told stories of rekohu. Pakifara of Ngāti Tama later recalled the conversation going something like this. It is a land of food. Hefinoa Kai, it's full of birds. There's an abundance of sea and shellfish. Those lakes swarm with eels. And it is a land of the Karaka Berry. The inhabitants are very numerous, but they do not understand how to fight and have no weapons. So, about 900 members of both iwi commandeered a ship called the Lord Rodney and made their way to Rekohu. Its captain, John Hewood, said he was forced to take the Māori on board, but he also admitted they paid him. The Lord Rodney made two trips to Rekohu. The first mostly carrying Ngāti Tama, the second mostly carrying Ngāti Mutunga. The ship was overcrowded. Many members of both iwi suffered dehydration and seasickness. Moriori sources said some Māori were so unwell when they landed, they had to be nursed back to health by Moriori. At first, Moriori weren't sure why Māori had arrived, as a Moriori leader named Hirawanu Tapu later said. Their true intentions were hidden from us. Probably a month or so after the landing, those intentions became clear. As historian Michael King puts it, Parties of warriors armed with muskets, clubs and tomahawks, led by their chiefs, walked through Moriori tribal territories and settlements without warning, permission or greeting. If the districts were wanted by the invaders, they curtly informed the inhabitants that their land had been taken and the Moriori living there were now vassals. A vassal is an old medieval word. It means something like subject or servant. Some Moriori objected to this, but the Māori chiefs weren't prepared to negotiate. Those who resisted were killed. After a few days, nearly a thousand Moriori held a meeting at Te Awapātiki, a sacred spot at the opening of Te Whanga Lagoon, which had yet to be reached by Māori. As Hiruani Tapu explained, It was proposed to make a combined assault on the intruders. And even though many of the Moriori might fall, 
they would succeed. The young men acknowledged Nunuku's law forbade killing, but surely this was a special case. But the older men repeated the words of Nunuku Finua. From now and forever, never let there be war as this day has been. Nunuku's law of peace permitted no exception. Anyone who broke it would be outcast from Moriori society. The debates lasted three days, but in the end, the older men prevailed. Moriori would return to their villages and offer to share land and resources peacefully with the invaders. Unfortunately, they never got the chance. Moriori sources say two rangatira o Ngāti Tama, Meremere and Ngāpē, stumbled across the meeting at Te Awapātiki while scouting for land to settle. And for a moment, let's look at this from their perspective. Meremere and Ngāpē saw nearly a thousand Moriori arguing back and forth about whether to make a coordinated attack on Māori or hold to their covenant of peace. But they left before the meeting ended, so they may not have realised Moriori had decided to remain peaceful. To them, it may have seemed they were facing a serious threat. After all, Moriori outnumbered Māori by two to one on record at this point. It's likely Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Mutunga held a hui of their own and decided to attack the Moriori preemptively as they returned from Te Awapatiki. Here's how Moriori sources described what happened. The women and children were bound, and many of these, together with the men, were killed and eaten, so that the corpses lay scattered in the woods and over the plains. Those who were spared from death were herded like swine and killed even from year to year. Decades later, Moriori compiled a list of those who had died. They named 118 men and 108 women killed by the invaders. They also noted the list didn't include a considerable number of children whose names had been forgotten. The Waitangi Tribunal has since estimated the total death toll at 300, nearly a sixth of the roughly 2,000 Moriori living at the time. Speaking decades after the invasion, in 1870, Ngāti said, We took position in accordance with our custom. Some ran away from us, these were killed, and others we killed. But what of that? It was in accordance with our custom. Now, that does sound brutal, but Rakoto was correct. It was in accordance with Māori custom. Many 19th century Māori saw warfare as a valid way of acquiring land and resources. That view was shared by most people in the world at the time. But Rekohu wasn't Aotearoa, and Moriori had a completely different culture to Māori. Warfare was not seen as a valid way of settling a dispute, and Nunuku Whenua had expressly forbidden cannibalism. The mental impact on Moriori who witnessed the violation of these laws was profound. Alongside those 226 men and women named as being directly killed, Moriori also listed 1,336 people who died of kōngingi, a disease of deep despair, in the years following the invasion. Those who survived were enslaved, raped, and many were worked brutally. A visiting German doctor and scientist named Ernst Diefenbach said, 
ulcerated backs bent almost double and emaciated paralytic limbs with diseased lungs are the ordinary lot of these ill-fated wretches to whom death must be a real blessing. Moriori were separated from family, forbidden from marrying each other or having sexual contact. They were forbidden from speaking their own language or practising their religion. The children Māori masters had with female slaves were rejected by their fathers and also became servants or slaves. This was different from what usually happened to defeated people in traditional Māori warfare. Yeah, raupatu, seizure of land through warfare, was normally solidified through strategic marriages, not through extermination. In traditional Māori warfare, war captives couldn't be bought or sold, and any children that captive women had with their masters were typically considered full members of their father's hapū. Summing up the treatment of Moriori in a 2015 paper published in the Journal of Genocide Research, Historian Dr Andre Brett wrote, Within the theoretical framework of genocide, the Moriori case satisfies the standard definition of acts committed with intent to destroy an ethnic group, specifically encompassing the acts of killing, prevention of births and imposition of living conditions not conducive to survival. So why were Moriori treated like this? It's hard to say for sure, but historians have come up with a few theories. Many think the trauma of the musket wars played some part. Michael King thought some members of Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Mutunga may have misinterpreted Moriori non-violence as cowardice, which they thought deserved punishment. And Dr Andre Brett argues at least some members of those iwi believed Moriori were racially inferior. As Dr. Brett points out, Moriori slaves weren't referred to using traditional words for war captives like Taurekareka or Mōkai. Instead, members of Ngāti Mutunga and Ngāti Tama were recorded using a slur that Europeans commonly used for Aboriginal people. But that's not to say all Māori saw Moriori as inferiors to be exterminated, or that all Moriori were passive victims. Following the invasion, some rangatira like Paul Maria Ngātata of Ngāti Mutunga and Mirimiri of Ngāti Tama gave shelter to Moriori who were threatened by other Māori. And many Moriori resisted slavery by refusing to work in spite of threats, beatings and executions. According to one account, a man called Kōtshia took even more drastic action. He attempted to feed his master a poisonous fish, then escaped Rekuhu aboard a passing whaling ship. In 1842, a group of Māori Anglican missionaries arrived in Rekohu, and most of the Māori population converted to Christianity. That same year, Rekohu was officially declared part of colonial New Zealand. Many Māori who converted to Christianity freed their Moriori slaves, or at least treated them less brutally. But still, many Moriori remained enslaved, and while British officials were aware of their suffering, they didn't do anything about it until the 1860s. Māori began leaving Rekohu in the 1850s. Ngāti Tama were basically driven off the island altogether after a series of conflicts with Ngāti Mutunga. Others left as the whaling industry collapsed and opportunities for trade with passing ships dried up. And as the New Zealand wars ramped up in the 1860s, many travelled home to defend ancestral lands from invasion by the Crown. Over these years, Pākehā officials and visitors to Rekohu continued raising the alarm over Moriori enslavement. One letter sent directly to Governor George Grey in 1861 by an official named William Seed said, This miserable remnant of these ill-used people, I believe, cling most strongly to the belief that His Excellency's government will ere long restore them to freedom. 
but Governor Gray didn't restore them to freedom. Not yet, anyway. So the next year, Moriori elders wrote to him themselves. They were led by Hiruanu Tapu, who'd been 11 years old at the time of the invasion. Hiruanu put together a 131-page document laying out Moriori history, their hokopapa, the development of Nunuku's law, the 1835 invasion, and everything that had happened since. It came with a petition, signed by all 30 surviving Moriori elders, urging the governor to intervene. It said, Friend, this is a request from us that you come here. You must bring us the law of England. We, the Moriori, are living without the law. Come here so that you may meet the remnants of the Moriori elders. Come and save us. If Governor Gray ever replied to this letter, it's not recorded. But the next year, in 1863, Moriori slavery was finally abolished. It was nearly 30 years since the initial invasion and more than 20 years since the colonial government asserted control over Rekuhu. The Moriori population had plummeted from more than 2,000 in 1800 to 101 in 1860. And it was still falling. Hiruanu Tapu continued lobbying the colonial government for the return of Moriori land. In another letter to Governor Gray, he pointed out, We are the original inhabitants. The law says that land taken unjustly must be returned to those whose it was before. Enough. Come to set this island right. It took eight more years before the Native Land Court finally sat in Rekohu in 1870 to investigate and determine land ownership. Hiruwanu Tapu was the chief Moriori witness. He and others pointed out that according to Tikane Moriori, Moriori customary law, anyone who killed a fellow human was outcast from society with no rights to land or resources. The Māori invaders had breached that law. Moriori had not, as Hiruwanu said. I repudiate their right altogether, because the blood of the Moriori, as shed by them, has never been revenged. And therefore, they have no right to the islands. Unfortunately for Moriori, the court thought in terms of British and Māori worldviews, which accepted that land could be claimed through conquest and occupation. Judge John Rogan may also have been thinking that if the colonial government granted rights to land in Rekohu to Ngāti Mutunga, it might make the iwi less upset about the Crown's confiscation of ancestral lands in Taranaki. So the judge sided with Ngāti Mutunga. 97.3% of Rekohu went into their ownership. Moriori were left virtually landless. Over the next hundred years, the Moriori population continued to fall. Language and traditions faded from living memory. But Hiruanu Tapu worked closely with a local ethnologist named Alexander Shand to save as much as possible. They interviewed Moriori elders preserving hokopapa, history, language and traditions in a written record. Unfortunately, this view of Moriori history wasn't the one told in New Zealand schools. Instead, educators went all in on a theory devised by ethnographers like Percy Smith and Alston Best. You may have heard this story before. 
It falsely claims Moriori were a primitive people who lived in Aotearoa before the more advanced Māori arrived and drove them to extinction. Moriori on Rekohu were supposedly a remnant of these primitive first people of New Zealand. This myth, yes, very much a myth, was challenged as soon as it emerged and later fully debunked by professional historians but a version of the story was published in the school journal and was read by generations of young New Zealanders up until the 1970s. So why did these myths become so popular? Well, partly because they were politically useful to Pākehā. Maui Solomon, chair of the Hokotehi Moriori Trust and chief Moriori negotiator, puts it like this. The reason the myth of Moriori extinction became so powerfully ingrained in the psyche of New Zealanders is because if Māori could push Moriori out of New Zealand, then later European migrants could push Māori off their land. It was a justification of European colonisation of Māori land. Another myth that needs debunking is this idea that Moriori were just passive victims. Their non-violent resistance showed amazing personal courage and it inspired other movements. Yeah, it's thought Moriori philosophy influenced Tohu Kākahi and Te Whiti Mai, the famous pacifist leaders of Parihaka. Ngāti Mutunga became huge supporters of Tohu and Te Whiti and in fact the albatross feather worn by the people of Parihaka as a symbol of peace was originally a Moriori symbol. Over time, Moriori have reclaimed some of what was lost and taken from them. In 2005, Kōpinga Marae became the first Moriori Marae to be established since the invasion. It's become a hub for the revitalisation of Moriori language and culture. As the true story of Moriori history becomes more widely known, people with Moriori ancestry are becoming more comfortable expressing that identity. Today there are about 6,000 people of Moriori descent, including many of the 600 people living on Rekohu. The Hokotehi Moriori Trust is heavily involved in conservation efforts. They aim to make Rekohu predator-free and restore the forests which once cloaked the island. In November 2021, the Crown passed the Moriori Claim Settlement Bill with the Moriori Emi Settlement Trust. That bill includes official apologies, including for its failure to protect Moriori, uphold their language and culture, and perpetuating stereotypes of Moriori as a racially inferior people. The bill also includes $18 million of financial compensation. Summing up an article on the history and modern-day experiences of Moriori people, Maui Solomon said this. Such was the commitment of my Moriori karapuna to living in peace and sharing the resources of their islands that they refused as a people to ever fight to the death again. In doing so, they suffered greatly and many died. But they did not die in vain. Their legacy of peace and hope lives on through the thousands of descendants living today, many of whom are just learning the truth. For when all the wars and battles have been fought, what then? Humans must learn to live in peace with one another and with their environment if we're to survive and thrive as a species. That's the bottom line.
Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. And a huge thanks to the... I see... And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. And an extra special thanks to Tama Solomon and Kiwa Hammond, stepping in as voice actors for this episode in particular. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.